I'm your host, Pre, and today I've got Logan Reed on the podcast. And Logan is currently doing a documentary, which is incredibly interesting, and I'm, I'm very interested to hear uh, about the process, uh, number one, of doing a documentary, because normally you just see them kind of come out in a, on a movie, and you really don't hear anything about the process or the effort that it goes into. So, Logan, how are you doing, man? I'm good, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Good. And where are you located at? So I'm in Winchester, Virginia, um, about an hour outside of Washington, D.C. Okay. Okay. And uh, and how long were you in the military for? So I spent a little over eight years uh, total, mostly with the Maryland National Guard. Um, but yeah, a little over eight years. Okay. And you were, you were a pilot? No, no. So I, I did go to uh, flight school, and that's where I met uh, the, the two characters in the documentary, the two uh, – Two, two people it's based on Ali and Ahmed. Um, but unfortunately was medically, uh, medically discharged after about eight months or so, um, which was a, a big gut punch, but <laughs> I went off to do a few other, uh, cool things. Cool. What did you do afterwards? So, uh, I started as a, a, an air defense artillery officer and that's, that's where I transitioned to out of, uh, out of ROTC, uh, went to Loyola university and went through that, uh, their ROTC program. So went to went to Fort Sill, uh, trained up as an uh, air defense artilleryman, uh, transitioned out, went into a, an aviation brigade uh, where I took over their uh, Adam cell. It's an air, disp- air defense air- airspace management uh, cell, monitoring airspace and such. Uh, and I was you know offered the opportunity to attend flight school back in 2015, and I said. Hell yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, so I went went to uh, Fort Rucker. Um, you know, went through SEER school, uh, all the you know, Aeromed courses. Uh, started flying the TH sixty seven, which is just a, a small civilian style helicopter, and started getting really motion sickness in the cockpit. Um, so we tried a, a bunch of different techniques, but it, unfortunately, it didn't work out. Uh, I came back to the aviation brigade and uh, assumed uh, air defense responsibilities, took up some information operations, um, and then uh, deployed in 2017, uh, spent time in Iraq, Syria, Kuwait, um, was the uh, force protection officer for the brigade, as well as the Iraqi partnership officer, which was a fantastic experience. And then following that, I took a eight month rotation in Germany where I was uh, did, did budget uh, budget management and um, some liaison work and yeah, transitioned home um, early. Let's see, I guess late, late 2018. Uh, and then, yeah, it started my uh, my separation from there. How was your your separation from the military? Like what was that? What has that experience been like? Yeah, so it's, it's still in process, actually. It's. Um, it, it's unique. So, you know, active duty, I think it's a little bit straightforward. You know, you, you serve your, uh, your commitment and then you go through the out processing, you get your DD 214 and, uh, it's kind of sayonara for me. Uh, I'm transitioning from, you know, uh, an active Maryland guardsman where you typically train one week in a month, two weekends, uh, a year, and then going into the IRR, which is the independent ready reserve, uh, you essentially go to a, a one day muster a year. So you're not, you're not completely separated. Uh, meaning I could, you know, uh, go back in, um, pretty much whenever, whenever I wanted to. Um, but also you have the, uh, the chance of being called up in the event of, you know, some type of, uh, some type of, 
um, issue going on in the world or, or stateside. Um, but at, right now, you know, you, you turn in all your gear, uh, you get your, um, you make sure all your records are, are straight. And then it's just a, it's a waiting game, um, waiting for the tag, uh, the top, you know, officers in the Maryland national guard to sign, to you know, sign the appropriate paperwork. And then, yeah, you're transitioned after that. So as of right now, it's still, still kind of a waiting game <laughs> to get all the, the paperwork finalized. I actually got called up on the inactive ready reserve back in 08 and wow. it was crazy. I, I was at work and I came home and, and my mom was like, Hey, there's something on the, on the piano for you, which the piano was right by the door. And it's kind of where we used to put the mail. And, um, I look over and there's, it's this manila folder and I'm like, Oh God, I know what that is. <laughs> you know, the font, you know, I could just tell from the, from the front. I'm like, that's definitely from, from the department of the army. And I opened it up and they're like, yeah, you've got orders. It was, I think it was right at the be right in the middle of August. And the, I had orders to go to uh, Fort Jackson, South Carolina, relax in Jackson. And, um, and I went and I, I got down there and we had to do a, uh, you know, you got to do medical and stuff. And my shoulder was all jacked up and they're like, yeah, you're, you're not fit for duty anymore. And they sent me back home. <laughs> yeah. But, I, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was, I was going to say I, I had the opportunity to work, you know, with some fantastic NCOs throughout my military career. And, uh, during my turn in process, my gear, um, they, they said the same thing. They're like, you know, sir, this is, there's a high likelihood of being called up. And I was like, don't say that. Knock on some. <laughs> yeah. You know what? It, it seems like nowadays it's not as, um, you know, it, back in 08, we were like in hardcore war at the time, you know, and it was really, really going on. It seems like it's somewhat, you know, it's tapered off a bit. Right. But hopefully, you know, for you, you know, for you, if, if you, uh, you don't have to, you don't have to go back. So you're in currently doing a documentary and, um, could you tell us the basis uh, of the documentary? Yeah, absolutely. So like I mentioned before, I, I attended flight school back in 2015. Um, there we had, uh, a pretty large international, uh, student body, um, kind of alongside the U S soldiers. So, you know, we had soldiers from, uh, the Iraqi army aviation, uh, the Afghanistan, uh, army, Saudi Arabia. So pretty, really interesting experience, uh, from, from the start. And, uh, that's where I met, uh, Ali, uh, Ali and Ahmed. Um, they were both uh, from Iraq, uh, grew up in Baghdad. Um, and so we, you know, through flight school, we, uh, we, developed a really great bond. Um, Ali was my stick buddy in the beginning. Stick buddy is, uh, the person you study with, uh, you initially fly with, um, you really do everything with. And, uh, it's funny uh, when, when we sat in the class and uh, during the selection time, when, um, our instructors were letting us know who our stick buddy was, you know, I thought to myself, and this was really before, uh, getting to know Ali and, and the guys. Um, I, I, I was like, please God, do not pair me with any of them. Like, please do not do that. And my, my thought was, you know, obviously communication in the cockpit, uh, is, is critical. And, you know, if I, if I wasn't able to communicate effectively, you know, we were, something bad was going to happen. So I'm sitting there just thinking to myself, please, no, please, no. And, you know, my luck, and it turned out to be a, the best thing that 
could have happened, but uh, my instructor says, all right, Logan Reed, your uh, stick buddy is um, Ali Hidef. I was like, all right, great. Uh, so, so I went up to Ali, you know, and we, we hit it off from, from the beginning. Uh, fantastic individual, extremely smart. Um, it turned out to be an incredibly skilled pilot. Um, but yeah, you know, so through flight school, uh, spent time, we traveled to, uh, to Destin, um, Panama city on, on the weekends that we had, we had free time. So I really got to, uh, to talk to them a bunch and learn about their background and, uh, and their life kind of coming from Iraq, working through, working their way through the Iraqi army, uh, and then transitioning to the Iraqi army aviation and then making their way stateside. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, so prior to my deployment in 2017, you know, I'm still in uh, communication with Ali Ahmed, and our friend uh, Yazir, and a few others. Um, so after they graduated, they went back to Iraq and uh, they, continue, you know, they they pretty much hit the ground running. Uh, they were starting missions instantly. Um, you know, obviously, due around that time um, in the in the height of ISIS, um, that was uh, they were very busy. And I, I got a phone call. Uh, this was, I think, during a warfighter exercise um, prior to the deployment that Ali had been shot down in, uh, in Samara, Iraq. And it, uh, it definitely it was definitely a, a huge shocker to me. Um, I spoke with him uh, probably a, two, two weeks prior to that. Um, and, you know, not, not the greatest thing to. To, to hear right before you, you know, head over. I was definitely planning to, to meet up with him and, uh, and everything, but, um, you know, you, you, ha- you have to kind of move forward after that. So we go through, um, you know, pre-deployment training, uh, eventually get over there. And I learned that, you know, in addition to being the force protection officer for the brigade, I was going to be the Iraqi partnership officer and something I was very excited about, you know, I studied, uh, the culture and I knew, um, a good amount about the, the history. So I was really looking forward to working with our Iraqi partners and, uh, our not other friend, you off, not to cut yeah. you off. What does the force protection officer, like what are their responsibilities? Yeah. So essentially you are responsible for the safety security, um, of all the you know, personnel equipment, um, everything that we have in the brigade at the various locations uh, throughout the Middle East. Um, you're responsible for performing analysis of different locations, um, looking forward and seeing, you know, what possible areas we might be able to set up, uh, locations for our aviation assets. Uh, and that was a really, really unique, uh, position in itself. Okay. Now go on ahead with your story. Sorry. I just, I wasn't sure what, what, uh, what you did. Yeah, of course. No worries. So, uh, so I'm working with the Iraqis. Um, my friend Ahmed, like I mentioned, he's uh, he's still flying in Iraq, and um, we had plans to meet up at, at Taji, which uh, that was predominantly where I, I was uh, I was based out of. And I learned that uh, I I got a message from one of our other friends Yazir, uh, and learned that he was shot down um, in in Mosul, and. Uh, you know, being over there and working, you know, side by side with uh, with the Iraqi army aviation leaders, um, I, it, being so close to where he was and so close to, to seeing him for the first time in uh, several years, uh, it, it definitely it, it really hit home. Um, so he was the second uh, good friend of mine from flight school who, who was shot down uh, during this war. 
And uh, yeah, definitely a tough, tough time um, for me personally. But, you know, we had a we had a mission and we still do have a mission. Um, so I had to uh, kind of move on from there. And in a in a way, it, it did strengthen uh, that bond and that um, that working relationship with with the Iraqis. Um, you know, they they knew uh, that I attended flight school with a bunch of their pilots and, um, you know, they were devastated uh, to hear about the loss of first Ali and then Ahmed. Um, but these, these were two fantastic human beings, uh, and fantastic pilots, um, you know, who unfortunately lost their life uh, during the fight against the Islamic state. Um, but that's, those are two out of many who have uh, unfortunately perished, uh, you know, U.S. coalition and specifically in this situation, Iraqi uh, forces. So um, the, the documentary is going to be us going back to Iraq, um, meeting with the family, close friends, going back to Taji, meeting with uh, back with my Iraqi army aviation contacts and and telling the story of their lives and, you know, what motivated them to, you know, uh, Join join the Iraqi army. How that experience was for them, you know, going through uh, pretty much war uh, in their country since since they were born. You know, starting with the Gulf War, Desert Storm, Desert Shield, transitioning to you know the surge. I mean, that's that's pretty much all they they've known since they grew grew up. Um, but knowing them personally and and how how incredibly passionate they were about uh, you know defeating ISIS number one, but also you know. They had, they had such patriotism for the United States and what we were doing, um, which that I think that that's what hit me the most is, you know, I, I had a I had my you know uh, preconceived notions um, of you know motivations and everything, but they completely you know changed my mindset. Uh, so the story is going to be their lives uh, through the Iraqi uh, people's eyes, um, telling their story. You know, it's got to be unreal. You know, because they. You know, you grow up in this kind of environment and then you, you know, you head to America to go to flight school and then you, you know, you meet, you meet, uh, you know, you have, you meet friends, American friends, and then you head down to Panama Beach for the weekend and you look around and you're like, is, you know, here it's like, is there even a war going on? You know, when all of their lives, you know, all of, all they've known is really war. And that's got to be somewhat jarring for them. Did they ever talk about like their experience in America? Absolutely. That was a, that was a huge, you know, yeah, we had, we had, uh, times where we would, you know, be very strict with studying. There are times where we would, uh, you know, just lounge on the beach and, and relax, but, you know, just looking at them, you could tell how much they appreciated every moment being here. And yeah, you know, they missed their family and they missed home and, you know, they had, they had so much pride for the, for their, their own country. But, um, yeah, the, the, the experience was unreal. Um, I know that, you know, leaving was 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 tough. Um, one of our friends has actually uh, transitioned um, from Iraq. He's now you know living and working in the United States. Um, but it was it was a fantastic experience for them, and they 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 appreciate you know they appreciate democracy. And I think I think in we and we had conversation we had multiple conversations about um, you know how they could develop as leaders in Iraq and help. You know, form and, and morph, um, you know, the government and the culture, and continue, uh, continue leading Iraq to 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 a positive light and keep driving, um, you know, great change. Uh, and a lot of it was 
I think was based on, off their personal experiences here in the United States and just all, all the opportunities that, you know, we have here that um, they would love for, uh, for other Iraqis to eventually get. So what point in the, in the documentary are, are you right now? So we just finished our first round of Indiegogo uh, funding. Um, and to be honest, this is, this is the first documentary that uh, I've ever decided to jump in. So it's been a, it's been a learning process from day one. Um, you know, I, I had this idea and, and even, even during flight school, I, I talked to Ali Ahmed Yazir, uh, a few of my other buddies uh, about doing some type of, you know, movie on Iraq and, uh, and the transition just because they were, they were two incredibly influential people in my life. It, it, the documentary just took a, a much different turn, you know, learning after their, their passing. Uh, and I really wanted to focus this on, on their lives and, um, and, you know, showing, showing everybody, um, the wonderful people that they were, but also the process and, and how everything is transitioned. So right now, uh, we are, we're currently waiting for our visas to be approved. Um, it's a small team. It's myself, um, our director of photography, Jake Hamby. Um, he's a freelance, uh, cinematographer, uh, is, does incredible work. Um, he, uh, worked on the set of Netflix house of cards, um, has done a few independent films, uh, where the road ends, uh, which is in process right now. Um, in- incredibly skilled. And, uh, so that was the, the initial, so I had, had the idea. I knew that, you know, me running around in the desert with a camera was probably not going to look so great. <laughs> uh, so, so my first step was finding, uh, somebody, number one, somebody who believed, um, in what I was, what the mission was, what we were trying to do. And, but also somebody who's incredibly skilled with, uh, with, you know, shooting a documentary. So, uh, you yeah, know, posted on, you know, my social accounts and, uh, I had some friends, you know, post, uh, who have a little bit bigger following and I, I got, I got a good amount of responses. Um, and I was surprised at, at some, so we had, we had people from, um, some major news, news networks reach out. We had uh, Nat Geo uh, photographer reach out. Um, and then, you know, I, I had brief conversations with, with a lot of them and, you know, they had great experience. But uh, my first call with Jake, uh, we, we talked on the phone for about an hour and a half. Uh, he was a former combat cameraman in, in the military. Um, and, you know, he, 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 he's been back uh, after getting out and was embedded with a few few different, uh, militias, uh, filming. And, you know, he, he believes, you know, he believes in, in the project just as much as I did. So it, it was just a perfect, uh, perfect match. Um, and the other team member that we have is, uh, CJ, uh, CJ was my interpreter, um, during my Iraq deployment. Um, one of the best human beings I've ever met. Uh, I'm really excited for, uh, for for the world and for people to to see more of CJ, um, anyone who's met him knows uh, just how big his personality is, how big his heart is. Um, but he's been you know, he's he's been serving, um, supporting the U.S. military since the surge. Um, went to school in, in Baghdad for computer science. Uh, you know, U.S. troops came. Uh, his first experience was uh, a team of Marines uh, came through his his town and. Uh, his English was okay at the time, um, but good enough to, to be an interpreter. And he said, how can I help? Uh, so he tagged along 
and you know worked his way and he eventually got a uh, uh his citizenship through through his service so he's um uh still living in baghdad um but uh we will be meeting up with him when we when we go over um so that's where we are right now that's really interesting you know and to hear about your you know your cameraman that's got to be really hardcore to be you know running around with a camera and uh with no weapon you know just trying to just uh you know taking a uh you know kind of a bird's eye view from the ground actually uh, of of a perspective you know there's a movie that came out recently i think it's called a a private war and it's about this woman who is a she's a um she was a a journalist and she was trying to uh, she lost an eye during uh, during a conflict you know being being a journalist and uh you know you you really don't hear a lot about those people you know you get the you know the photos and you get the the stories but you really don't hear about those people uh, very often when when meeting this guy did did him being a veteran kind of sway you in a way because maybe he kind of maybe understands what you're trying to do or 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 something yeah so i think definitely uh having you know being a veteran himself uh he could relate to to a lot of what what i experienced and um you know him having him having spent uh, quite a bit you know, a, a, a large majority or a good amount of time in the Middle East, uh, both, you know, while in the service and outside, you know, he, he has a different perspective, but, you know, I, I made a, I made a point to, to not, you know, only look at, uh, or consider individuals who, who have military experience, but, uh, also bring to the table, um, you know, that, that fantastic, uh, you know, artistic, uh, uh, point and, and view to to what they what they create and you know who am I to know what's artistic but you know, I am a big movie and documentary nerd so um, you know I I watched a, a bunch of of his stuff and it, it really blew me away um, and a few, couple of the side projects that he's working on right now I, I think are going to be uh, pretty pretty huge um, relatively speaking um, in, in that in that arena but um, yeah it was. Uh, he, he definitely, it, it, it was definitely a good, a very good fit. So when you decided that you wanted to do a documentary, like what, what did you do? Like, like what, like what did you research? You know, like how did you, how did you get it off the ground? Um, how to, how to make a documentary for dummies. No, <laughs> no I, I actually don't know if that, if they do have a, that book, but it probably would have come in handy. Uh, honestly, I started reaching out to, uh, to my friends and, and, uh, colleagues who, um, who I've, I've known have been in, in that arena. Um, you know, a lot of, just a lot of research online, you know, um, one of the big things, you know, I, I didn't, I knew that, uh, that there was going to be a, a good amount of time needed for this. And, you know, it started out as a side project, but the more the more time that I was spending outside of work on it, uh, I realized that the only way I could successfully do this is if I dedicate you know all my time with it. So right now, this is my my full time project. Um, I uh, I worked for Amazon for a little over three years, and one of the unique things about being in the in the guard is you know you you have the opportunity to have a civilian career. So um, you know, worked a, a few different things. Uh, was a consultant for Deloitte for, for a little bit, then transitioned to Amazon. Um, but you know, I, I, I was kind of at a crossroads where if, if I wanted to see this thing through and, and do it right, I know I needed to spend, um, 
a lot more time than than I, I was, which it almost felt like two full time jobs. Now it's just a, a full time job, uh, just taking up <laughs> a lot of time. But um, uh, yeah, so a lot of research, a lot of you know networking. Um, you know, I, I, there's a, a gentleman. His name's Dan Gabriel. He uh, just released a film called Mosul. And I had the opportunity to meet Dan in D.C. at a at an event um, a couple months ago. And so just really quickly, Dan's a, he's a former CIA um, officer, incredibly smart individual. And, you know, we have I had, I had no idea that there were other other filmmakers out there that um, at least during this time that uh, were were focused on not just the Middle East, but Mosul specifically. And, uh, you know, they just, they just launched on Amazon, uh, iTunes, you can get on Blu-ray, but an incredibly, incredibly powerful film. And it, uh, it's, it, it basically, you're, you're following a team and a journalist, um, that, you know, they're embedded with the Iraqi special operations forces. And it's during, um, the height of, uh, you know, ISIS and Mosul. So you see, you know, direct footage of, you know, these, uh, these Iraqi, um, special operations fighters, you know, battling ISIS. Uh, and it's, it's incredibly moving and, um, it definitely brings that, that reality, um, you know, to light. And, you know, since the fall, since the fall of Mosul, uh, in 2017, uh, which, which did happen while I was, I was in Iraq, um, you know, the, the state in Iraq, in Iraq, obviously it's getting, it's getting a lot better, but you know, there's still, like I, I mentioned uh, the other day to a few people, there's still, you know, a, a, a fairly heavy presence, uh, of, you know, extremists that, um, uh, which I think documentaries like, like Mosul and, and, you know, hopefully this one will, will bring to light, um, that, you know, this is still a very real, um, real threat, not just in the Middle East, but, uh, but holistically throughout the world. Do you think that the extremism is something that, you know, that these kids are born into? So, you know, tricky, tricky question. I think that, I think there are two, there's two main, uh, main ways that, that extremism is born. Um, so you, you look at, We'll take Iraq for instance. You look at Iraq's history, uh, starting you know in the in the late '80s, um, where Saddam's uh, regime you know used nerved gas to kill thousands of Iraqi citizens. Um, so that internal conflict you know sparked, uh, and then you know following the invasion uh, in Kuwait, so Saddam. Uh, Saddam's Iraqi army in, in, in Kuwait, you know, that's sparking the Gulf War. So Desert Storm, Desert Shield, um, you know, moving, uh, moving forward, uh, 9-11, um, that, and then, you know, our response, U.S. coalition responses, um, March, I believe it was March 20th, 2003, when Iraqi freedom began. And we had, we had a quarter of a million U.S. soldiers uh, invade Iraq, um, and then you know, fifty thousand British soldiers and a bunch of other coalition forces um, joining, and you you have to look at the the kids growing up, um, the you know the Iraqi kids. It doesn't matter Sunni Shia. Um, these these kids are growing up only seeing war and conflict and violence, and you have to think you know if they don't 
Number one, if they don't if they don't know clearly, you know, who's who's good and who's bad and, you know, let's say family members of theirs get killed, uh, that's going to spark a lot of anger and a lot of um, hatred for whoever they thought is responsible. And then, you know, coupled that with, uh, you know, individuals like um, uh, Al Zakari and, um, you know, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, uh, who was the, you know, ISIS leader, just flooding, um, flooded, like flooding the minds of uh, these youths and, and even, you know, young adults with uh, these, these extremist views. So I think on one hand, you have children growing up in a war-stricken location, uh, not much direction, really not a great understanding as to as to why certain things are happening, and they're going to grab, they're going to, you know, try to grip on and, and hold tight to something that that makes sense. And if you have a influential figure, regardless of, of what they're preaching, um, if they're taking you in, then they're going to go that way. You also have, and one of the one of the extremely uh, disconcerting and, um, to be honest, just something we've never seen before is the tactics that, uh, that ISIS has used or, or that use, uh, in, in recruiting. So not only did they have skilled war fighters, but, uh, a large, large amount of cash technology, uh, they were able to create these, um, internet propaganda videos that made its way across the world. And then you have, you have people, you know, in the United States that, have never been to the Middle East, have never met an ISIS member who are joining the cause because they, you know, they feel strongly towards what they're looking, what they're trying to do. Um, so I, I think in that regard, extremism is is built in two ways: uh, whether you're, you're you grew up in that area and uh, you're, you're you've personally faced uh, some type of catastrophe that you know drives you in that direction, or you could grow up in, you know, the United States and you watch a video that um, that triggers you a certain way and you you have no other cause to stand behind. So you decide to, to jump in it, which is is very uh, it, it's sad, but um, it's something that we need to take very seriously. I think <clears throat> I think you made some really valid points with, you know, especially with, um, you know, the blurred lines, because. You know, when you're a kid, you don't know what, who the good guys or the bad guys are. As as far as you're concerned, you know, like your family are the good are the good guys. You know, so it's yeah. very easy to to be you know to be angry when when a family member dies, and then you kind of turn on on your you 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 want to put your anger towards your aggressors. So in a way, you know they they feel that they are you know that they are fighting for the good side. And, you know, it's it's something that I've thought about, but I think it's something that a majority of people don't uh, take into consideration as the perspective uh, of these people, you know? Absolutely. Uh, and, and the thing is, so, you know, yes, uh, Iraq has declared you know, uh, that, that ISIS is, is gone, and um, to an extent that's true, but you do have to think about... Um, how many how many ISIS fighters have have fled and that are still out there? So very similar dynamic, uh, like in the 1980s. Um, think of uh, back in Afghanistan. So thousands of foreign fighters flocked uh, to Afghanistan to help the Afghani mu- mu- mujahideen uh, fight the Soviet invasion. 
um, after after that ended, um, those those fighters left and they formed a very loose network of jihadists, uh, many with connections to bin Laden and Al Qaeda. Um, and what a lot of experts uh, and what I'm thinking as well is uh, something very similar with ISIS, ISIS is going to happen. So um, now that the fight is uh, is is kind of leaving Iraq, they don't have they don't have a foundation to 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 hold on anymore. So they're looking for 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 places to call home. And a lot of a lot of these fighters, you know, they came from uh, from Europe and uh, different locations. So, um, yeah, kind of like I, what I alluded to before, you know, people in the United States, San Bernardino, Orlando, uh, Paris. So ISIS claimed responsibility for these attacks. Um, but these individuals, a lot of them never, like I mentioned, have never been to the Middle East. They've never met an ISIS member, but they're becoming radicalized over the internet. Um, and that, that is, that is very, that that's a very alarming threat that, um, I still think is incredibly real and, and true today, um, that we need to, uh, as, as a, as a global community need to, to really stick together and, and figure out a solution. Yeah. You know, there's, I did a podcast called The ISIS Bride a few months back, and it was, you know, exactly like you said, this this girl, she denounced her citizenship and went to go and marry an, an ISIS fighter. And, you know, long story short, she wants to come back to the United States. I believe she's a Syrian refugee right now. And um, she had a baby from an ISIS fighter. Mind you, she had three husbands. Um, I think all three of them were killed, <laughs> you know, fighting. And she wants to come back, but it makes you wonder, you know, why would, why would you want to leave the United States to go and fight, you know, and and join ISIS, you know, other than, I don't want to say bring, being brainwashed, but, um, maybe it's a classic case of, you know, your recruiter kind of promised you something and, and you got something completely different. Now, as for, as for others, you know, living in, in the United States. And you know what the thing is, p- people living in the United States, we have a, we have a blanket of, of, um, of freedom and, and, a, and a blanket of, say, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Um, just being completely oblivious to what is going on on the outside of our, our, our walls and the walls, what I mean, the walls of the United States. You could pretty much living here, you could pretty much you know, um, not even pay attention to politics or, or, um, world politics. And you could probably, you know, just go your whole life without looking in, looking into any of it, being unaware of it and living a good life here. You know, that's not necessarily the case, uh, on the outside of the United States. And I think that having that kind of, of, of freedom is, is, is kind of like, uh, it's kind of a bad thing because, People start looking at, you know, only the bad things that the United States is and not the, not the good things that it is. And I think that there's a lot more good things with the United States than there are bad. Do you think that because maybe we have it so good in the United States that people look for the wrong and are looking for a cause to get behind? Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. I think, you know, in today's technological age, you can... You, you can completely shut out um, 
everything on the news. You can shut out politics. You can uh, go to work, come home, get on Facebook. Uh, you can honestly, you can tailor your your uh, what you're seeing based on you know uh, your interests. Uh, you can watch whatever uh, you know. Uh, whatever celebrity television show you'd like and completely, you know, just just disconnect from what's going on. And I, I'm not a I'm not a psychologist, but I, I think there's um, there's a great deal of uh, of people not wanting to to feel. Um, and I when I say feel, um, you know, it's very, it's people, people are busy in their everyday lives. Um, they, everybody, every family, every individual, they go through their own, you know, personal life struggles. And, uh, uh, I think some people are, they get overwhelmed to the point where if they start, you know, opening up their purview to other things going on that may, may very well impact, impact them in a certain way. It could, they could either a think that they're going to be thrown off their game. They're going to, you know, change the way, um, that, you know, that they're, they're living life and that's not something that they want to do. But, um, you know, you look at, uh, you look at the media, uh, today and, uh, whether you're watching Fox news, CNBC, uh, CNN, uh, every, every news, uh, Network, they're gonna they're gonna be they're they're biased uh, in in one way or the other. It's very tough to find uh, an unbiased uh, news source, and d- depending on what which direction you lean, that could be good. Um, I, I personally uh, enjoy reading you know, Al-, Al Jazeera, um, and I, I you know uh, I, I'm a I'm a Republican, so I, I do you know watch Fox News, but um, I, I probably split my time watching CNN and MSNBC because I I like to get a holistic view of everything. And, um, yeah, but I, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think it's very easy for people to, uh, kind of put that mask on and, um, and, and really kind of, uh, not, not think about what, what else is going on. You know, one of the problems with, you know, I, I, you know, I, I think that it's fine, you know, that, that people are, you know, Democrats or they're, you know, Republicans. What I don't think is good is that you have people that are on the far left and you have people that are on the far right. And I think the media, they concentrate on these people that are on the extreme left and these people that are on the extreme right. So when people watch the news, they're like, oh, all Republicans are like this or Oh no! All all Democrats are liberals. Everybody is like that, and that's not necessarily the case. And it's and it's gotten to a point where, based on what you see in the media, is that two people can have a have a conversation. They can have a disagreement on something, and it just be that. And if I mean, if you watch anything, you know, you watch CNN. You know, it's you know, it's 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 very it's very liberal, and you know they you know they bash the president. And they and everything, every single thing that the president does is is wrong, you know, and that's not necessarily the case. You know, just like everything that President Obama did wasn't wasn't 100 percent right, you know, and in in today's day and age, I think that it comes from the mainstream media kind of perpetuating this environment of it's either you're either this or you're either that. And you know what? 
if you talk to these people, you can't agree with them, even if they are making a valid point. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, I, and yet, the thing is, you know, I, I, I don't know the right answer as to, you know, how we, we, we bridge bridge that gap between the left and the right, uh, being radical in any direction, whether you're, uh, whether you're left leaning Democrat or right leaning Republican, uh, is not right. Um, there, there has to be common ground on, um, every major issue that we face politically, um, economically to, to some extent. Um, and I think a lot of it is, you know, Politicians not wanting to let down their constituents um, if they move forward with something that they may personally believe in. What is their what is their following? Who who are their uh, you know the, the people that uh, you know elected them in, into that specific position? How are they going to feel? So it it's gotten our political system has gotten to a dynamic where it's not it's not just that politician making a decision based on what they believe personally, um, which is unfortunate. And I think that, um, we need to see more, more candidates who are willing to, you know, have that backbone, disagree and commit, uh, and, and move forward with what they feel is right. And sometimes, you know, the decision is not going to be as simple as, Hey, this is a, you know, a conservative viewpoint because I am a, a designated Republican. I'm going to stick with that. Uh, I'm a, you know, I'm a, designated Democrat. And, um, this is a, a liberal, you know, issue, whether it's, um, it doesn't matter what, you know, what, what it's about because, uh, that is what the left is doing. I'm going to move forward in that direction. And I'm being general just not to talk about, um, any specifics right now. But, um, I think, I think in order for, for our country to, to bridge that divide, because I don't know if we've been more divided as a country, um, politically speaking, than we are right now. And uh, I think what we need is uh, we need more candidates and more individuals coming to uh, coming to help bridge those gaps, to not be afraid to talk about the very real issues that are going on, um, not to not be afraid to to agree with the left in in some in some aspects to agree with with the right and kind of bring those those far left and far right radical um, you know individuals and, and groups more towards the center because uh, the closer we get to the center the the, the quicker we are going to be to resolutions on a, a number of different uh, d- different issues. I agree, and you know I was watching uh, Dan Crane's. Uh, his Instagram account and you know, he sat there and he was taking questions from kids at a, at a college. And this kid was telling him that he needed to be, you know, ashamed of his, uh, of his military service, you know, and <laughs> which I think is an incredibly bold thing to say to, uh, to a Navy SEAL war veteran with an eye patch that is now a Congressman, you know, that, that he need, that he should be ashamed of his service. You know, I thought that was absolutely ridiculous. And I think that kids, especially college kids nowadays, you know, they want to get behind a, a cause, you know, say, uh, you know, a lot of them are, they support socialism for, for some God awful reason. And they don't, they don't know essentially the basics of, of what the foundation of our country is. So say, for example, you know, our country is, is built off of uh, being free, built off of democracy. Okay. And you have say a country like, 
you know, like Iraq that had a dictator, you know, and I think that they kind of want to because they're so used to, you know, live, living here and, and it being so great that they kind of want to try out some of these more radical ideas. And I don't I don't think that it'll it'll work out, you know, kind of like the sensationalism of kids wearing, you know, Che Guevara T-shirts, you know, and they have no idea who the guy was. Do you think that maybe colleges these days are that they're not teaching maybe a they're they're teaching their own political agendas instead of just being a a, a pure unbiased uh, teaching institution? I mean, yeah, I, my personal experience, you know, I did my undergrad at Loyola University. Uh, they were it was a fantastic education, um, you know, liberal, liberal arts school. But uh, they at least in my my courses uh, that I took, there was there was no, you know, hidden tr- indoctrination to one one way or the other. Um, I, I'm in the middle of my MBA program right now at University of Maryland, and um, I'm not seeing anything. But I think holistically, absolutely, it happens. Um, and I there was a there's a Gallup, a Gallup poll in 2018, uh, and it found that uh, I think little more than half of Americans uh, age 18 to 29, so that, that millennial uh, age, um, were looking at socialism positively and a little less than half, uh, you know, were, were for capitalism. And that is a that is a fundamental issue right there. And it's telling me that um, our school system, it, the, the, the College education system, you know, the, the high school education system, we're not doing um, a good enough job to to, to teach about history uh, and teach about how why these certain um, political uh, or 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 um, or views just it just does not work out. Um, and, you know, you. And there's there's not a lot you can do with with private you know universities and institutions. They're going to uh, they're going to teach how they they want to teach, uh, and there's not a lot of um, you know outside influence that can can affect it. It's going to come down to you know it's going to come down to parents and and you know future college uh, kids when they're looking at schools to to ask those tough questions um, and try to get a sense as to you know, if this is going to be an unbiased uh, education um, where you know, they're not going to be, uh, you know, whether it's just flat out indoctrinating, you know, individuals thinking one way or the other, or um, if they're going to, you know, provide factual uh, based lessons. And a lot of that, it, it, sometimes it's not even a, a university as a whole. It could be a you know, a handful of, of university professors that, that feel a very strong way and throughout their, their lessons and, and classes. And, and all it takes is, you know, one or two, maybe three, four professors in a university uh, to get a few really motivated individuals um, who, and going back to the, the, the example in, with the Iraqi kids, you know, obviously a, a much different experience growing up in, you know, war stricken location, but if you have if you have children and uh, you know, there's millions of kids that grow up uh, in the United States with not very great uh, you know not great role models um, family support system might be broken uh, not not a lot of direction in life and you know they 
they they find their way they 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 find a way to get to to university and you know the first person to deliver any type of meaningful or impactful uh you know messaging across to them a lot of them are going to are going to cling to that regardless of of if they you know maybe deep down they do believe it or not but if that message, if that messaging is continuously passed to them, yeah, they're gonna they're gonna cling to that, and that's what they're going to, you know, live their life at uh, and and move forward with. Um, so it's unfortunate, and I, I don't I don't have the right answer right now as how to how to best go about and, and fix it. I think a start would be for Bernie Sanders to to stop doing what he's doing, but uh, <laughs> we can uh, do that another day. You know, it's funny. Uh... You know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, she's obviously a, you know, a uh, fire pole of criticism for uh, Fox News, which I find kind of funny. But um, a couple things that they don't talk about was she was um, battling the, I believe it's the DNC, CC, I think it's three C's. And what they were doing was they were trying to blackball, they were trying to blackball firms that are, that are, um, essentially running campaigns and helping smaller smaller individuals that are trying to run for congress or office and pretty much just blackball them that they can't work with anybody if they work with these people and she was trying to bring that to light her and a couple other uh freshman congress people were trying to they're battling the the uh, democrats over that and you know what I, i you know obviously i'm not i'm not too big of a fan of hers but that's not really getting a lot of a lot of playtime in the media and i wonder why you know and and what it is 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 what they're trying to do is the the reasoning behind it is is that i'm not going to quote them but they what they said was uh we want to we want to um what was the wording that they used we want to protect our constituents and we want to uh, keep uh, the the, the Dem- Democrats in Congress. In other words, they want to hold on to power and they want to keep the people that they have in power right now in there for as long as humanly possible. And I think that that's wrong. And her, uh, you know, fighting these people on it, I think that it should get uh, more more playtime. I don't know. Have you heard of that? Uh, a little bit. I, you know, I, I respect specifically if we talk about AOC, um, I respect the position. I respect, you know, her working her way, uh, to, to get in, in, in that position. Um, Adam hundred percent disagree with, uh, probably 99.9% of things that she says. Uh, and uh, honestly, if you, if you know, and I hate to say, if you know anything, you you would uh, agree because she does have such a massive following. But that following is based off of emotions, and you know when people are emotional, uh, they're they're going to believe in nonsensical um, arguments. They're not going to look at facts, um, and yeah, unfortunately, that's that's how it is. Right. So to to move on because we kind of trailed off there, but that was yeah. fun. <laughs> Just a little bit. What do you have left in the in the documentary in the filming process? Yeah, so um, like I mentioned, right now we're we're waiting for the visas. Um, had a couple meetings uh, at the Iraqi embassy in DC. Um, met with uh, the Iraqi attaché. Um, we have some contacts over uh, in the MOD, and um, 
uh, on the Iraqi side, Iraqi Army Aviation, um, they the Iraqi Army Aviation uh, is 100% supportive of this film. Um, however, the decision uh, for us to go over and, and do the things that we're looking to do, uh, it requires a, a much level, much higher level of uh, of um, approval. So once that uh, the visas are, are are approved. Um, my, our time frame is we're looking at uh, early August uh, going over. Now that could shift left or right, like I said, depending on the visas. But we have what we need to get over and film. Um, the the funding that we raised on the Indiegogo campaign and and the you know the the the, the donors that we've had on the side, it's a, it's enough to get us over um, to film and then come back. Um, but the next stage, uh, so post-production, it's going to require you know a second round of funding um, to to get the documentary to where where it needs to be. Uh, so right now, like I said, waiting for visas. We'll go over. We'll get the filming done, and then uh, we'll need to we'll need to launch uh, another campaign, uh, and then continue to network with uh, whether it's you know veteran-owned uh, companies who have, a few have definitely helped support in terms of, you know, pushing the social media presence. Um, and, and I mentioned, I think, earlier that um, IAVA, uh, the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, so they've – I was so excited to hear that they were interested in um, becoming part of of this documentary. So there are, there are primary um, – uh, partner sponsor of this film um, a, as of this point, and uh, you know, getting their backing from you know the largest uh, veteran advocacy program um, in the United States is is huge. Um, but uh, getting, like I said, getting this documentary to where we need it, um, funding is going to be the next uh, biggest challenge, and uh, it's just. It's a, it's just a constant, you know, day after day, making phone calls, sending emails, um, getting getting the story in front of uh, in front of people that want to see it um, get bigger. And then, so are you looking for like say maybe a release like next uh, next summer? So, uh, post production should not take us. Uh, uh, you know, incredible amount of time. Um, because this isn't a feature, uh, feature film or a feature length documentary, this is going to be a, it's a short documentary. So, um, we will look to pitch this, uh, in the, you know, major U S film uh, festival circuit. Uh, we're looking at anywhere from 25 to 35 minutes in length. Um, so I would, and this, this is probably an ambitious goal. And Jake, after listening to this is probably like, ha, good luck. But, uh, I would love to see a, uh, a relatively close to finished product by December of this year. Um, so it would be my goal. Uh, and like I said, everything is based on uh, visas getting approved and then the second round of funding. But um, I would like to see a, a finished product into the like early 2020 uh, film festival um, uh, camp uh, circuit. And then, you know, we'd, we'd look to get this on, uh, on Hulu, iTunes, um, Amazon Prime, and then uh, Netflix would be would be huge. Um, it's very, I know that's a very difficult uh, platform to get on, but um, you know, with Jake's experience working on House of Cards, and um, we're, we're we're definitely we're definitely going to be looking to get it in that direction as well. 
Well, I'm going to be. Uh, I'm definitely going to be pulling for you, dude. And if if there's any uh, if you if there's anything I can do on, on my end to to push this, um, I'll I'll do it for you. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Mike. Uh, just having the opportunity to come and speak on your show is is huge, um, and I, I really appreciate uh, the time that that you took to do that. Yeah, man, I appreciate your service, and I, I appreciate you coming on the show, man. Um, you know, it's it is it it sounds incredible, you know, and and I want to. I'm very excited to hear the, you know, the the, the finished product. So uh, we're going to be pulling for you over here, man. And um, and once again, I appreciate your time. Is there anything that in closing that that you would like to say uh, to anybody out there? Just that, um, you know, Ali, Ali and Ahmed, uh, they they made they made the ultimate sacrifice. And and like like most most people here living in the, in the United States, um, you either know a service member or. Uh, you you know you have a family member who served. Uh, you're you're somehow connected to uh, to somebody who served in the armed forces. And if you've unfortunately gone through an experience where you've lost a loved one um, due to serving, you know it's a it's a different level of uh, of, of feeling. Uh, and I just I, the biggest thing I'd, I'd like to to push out is there are there are militaries and, and coalition uh, forces, people that are, groups and and uh, mil- militaries that. You know the United States that that we work with, um, that there there are those families in, in those countries as well, and they have the same feelings. And uh, regardless of of the culture, regardless of the background, regardless of you know how how they've grown up, um, at the very at the very human sense, um, we all feel the same the, the same things. Um, and Ali and Ahmed, they they did give that that ultimate sacrifice. And um, I, I, the biggest thing I want I want people to to understand that um, you know thousands of miles away um, we're really not all that different and um, I, I'm I'm looking forward to hopefully sharing that uh, through this film. Awesome, man. Well, uh, I echo those statements. You know, one hundred and ten percent. So uh, once again, uh, thanks for coming on the show, Logan, and. Uh, Everybody out there, be sure to do. You have a, a website, your social media that you want to share. Uh, so we have a uh, we have a Facebook page, um, Farsan Mosul, a short documentary. You can find it on Facebook. Um, our Instagram account is uh, Farsan Mosul movie. Uh, we're on Twitter, uh, Farsan Mosul. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll be hopefully launching the next round. Uh, probably be a, either a kick, uh, Kickstarter. Uh, or something like that, but more information to follow. Those those are the three primary accounts right now. Awesome, man. Well, there we go, guys. Thanks for listening. This is all that we got for you today. This is Logan and Pri out. Mm-hmm.